Well, it is our joy to uh, turn to Numbers chapter 1. Numbers chapter 1, and a couple of weeks ago we introduced the book of Numbers, and we're going to now get into the text. And as you're finding Numbers chapter 1, I want to talk to you about covenant. As part of the 21st century culture, we're not necessarily very familiar with the concept of a covenant, a formal agreement between two parties. We have some parallels, but the comparisons kind of vary in how strong they are and how helpful they are. Uh, For example, we make promises and commitments to one another, but I doubt that many of you, if I said, okay, I'll be there at nine o'clock, would say, thank you, Steve, for making a covenant with me that you will be there at nine o'clock. We do call our church membership agreement a membership covenant. It's to emphasize how serious it is to us. And yes, church discipline, in fact, can occur in, in extreme cases of unrepentant violation of this covenant. Even more formally, we sign contracts. These are agreements that obligate us to do things in exchange for getting things. You signed a contract to buy your house in most cases. But if you violate that contract, the worst that will happen is that you lose your house. Probably the closest thing we have to understanding covenant is marriage. Marriage is, by definition in Scripture, a covenant Why is this? Because you're promising mutual exclusivity and faithfulness to one another. But in our culture, you have the option of ending your marriage. And yes, there are natural consequences to that. There are spiritual consequences. But ultimately, you can go on with your life in some form. But in none of these cases do we have the level of intensity and positive or negative consequences as we see in a biblical covenant. In God's covenant with Israel, we see the positive consequences. Deuteronomy 28 says, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Those are the positive consequences. They're, they're big. They're lofty. But we also see the negative consequences. Deuteronomy 28, 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Then God proceeds to list what one commentator called 53 verses of curses. And it is comprehensive. These are consequences that include all forms of death and destruction. So when God covenants with a people, it's serious business. Since he's the one giving the grace and the mercy and the kindness to sinners, he will form and mold his people into those who conform to his holiness, to his righteousness. And I think it's a shame that we're often taught, particularly in our postmodern culture, we're often taught to believe that the new covenant in Christ The fact that we're saved by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross as we've repented of our sins, that the new covenant is somehow a more relaxed, a more informal agreement. Now, it is true that the old covenant, God's covenant with Israel, it was conditional upon obedience and it was a covenant set to expire and it did expire as it was replaced by the new covenant in Christ. But never, never, never should we say that somehow the new covenant is more laid back, more relaxed. 
The Bible does not indicate this. For example, 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that God will reward the good deeds of the saved, uh, of the Christian who enjoys the new covenant, but he also warns that it's possible to lose not your salvation, but all of your heavenly reward. It's serious business. James 3 verse 1 warns the church that not many should become teachers because they'll be judged with a stricter judgment. Acts chapter 5 records the shocking event of the instant deaths of Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the Holy Spirit. James chapter 5 records the example of a believer who's physically ill because of unconfessed sin. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells the believers there that God has made some of them sick and even killed some of them because of sin. Yes, their sins are still paid for by the blood of Christ, but God was disciplining them even to the level of taking some of them home to heaven. Now, as believers under the new covenant, we are certainly given great and mighty promises and benefits. Ephesians 1, 3 says we possess every spiritual blessing. We have eternal life. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the understanding of the word of God. We have the fellowship of the saints. We are enriched in the new covenant. We are enriched in Christ. But we also have covenant obligations. In fact, to illustrate this, Jesus gave us a simple procedure called baptism. That the very first act of demonstrating that you are in fact in Christ and that you've come under the blessings and the duties of the new covenant in Christ is that you will be baptized. You will submit yourself to a public declaration that you belong to Christ. As a matter of fact, what did Jesus say that we in the church are to do with those who would come under the new covenant, those who would repent of their sin and and receive new life in Christ? What are we supposed to do with them? Well, this is probably the most ignored part of the Great Commission. Matthew 28, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Here it is. Teaching them to observe, meaning to keep, meaning to obey all that I have commanded you. That's the first thing we're supposed to do. The very first thing the new Christian is to be taught is that we obey our covenant master, Jesus Christ. That's the first lesson. And what we're going to see right here in the book of Numbers is that that's also the very first lesson that God is going to teach Israel right after officially forming her into a nation that she must obey. Now, when we introduced the book of Numbers last time, we said that it's very much about the maturing of a nation. This nation that had just entered into covenant with God. If you haven't heard that message, I would urge you to listen to it. It'll help you understand the rest of these messages. So every message in this series now is going to deal with some aspect of maturity. Tonight, what we'd like to look at is maturity through obedience. Through obedience. And this is where God starts. Now, just to help us understand this first section of Numbers, chapters 1 through 10, verse 10, consists of the Lord preparing Israel to depart Mount Sinai. It was at Mount Sinai, of course, where they received the law of God. They willingly entered into covenant with God and now are headed toward the promised land of Canaan. And immediately, immediately, God is going to teach them to obey. That his covenant blessings come with obedience and submission to his will. 
And I divided this portion we're going to look at tonight, the first six chapters, into four categories of obedience. Four categories of obedience for us to consider this evening. Category one of obedience, we'll call this obedience of the lay people. Obedience of the lay people. The obedience of those under the spiritual leadership of the priesthood of Israel, of all the people. At Mount Sinai... Israel witnessed the thunder and the smoke and the awe-inspiring glory of God. And now, all of a sudden, the book of Numbers settles into what seems to be something very mundane. You have the thunder and the smoke and the law being given and Moses throwing down all the tablets and, and getting new ones. And all of a sudden, in the book of Numbers, it decrescendos to God saying, let's count everyone. Let's have a census Chapter 1, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them, company, by company. In the verses 4 through 16, God gives Moses assignments of representatives from each tribe to assist Moses in, in taking this count. These are the chiefs of the individual tribes of Israel. And you notice the focus of the census. It is military-aged men, men who could fight. Now, why is this? Well, Israel is about to go out like a sheep among wolves, and military engagement is going to be part of the deal. God is not only bringing Israel to the promised land, Israel will be used as the instrument of God's righteous indignation and wrath against wicked peoples who were squatters on his land. You recall from Exodus 17 that Israel had already had one brief encounter with the Amalekites and there were many more to come. In fact, here in chapter 1, God uses the phrase, able to go to war 14 times. God was the head of his people, but he was going to use them for his purposes. And so as part of obeying the covenant of God, Israel was to do his bidding up to and including fighting the enemies of God. Or could I put it this way? You didn't just enter into covenant with God, you enlisted. You're now part of his army. You're now under his command. And if you think about this for a moment, What a great way, what a genius way to teach the lay people of Israel that they are to mature in obedience. You notice that God didn't just magically transport them from Mount Sinai instantly into being on their own land with every man enjoying his vineyards and homes and wealth and abundant livestock. No, first they had to fight. First they had to follow God into battle. They had to obey. In fact, even today... We know from experience that those who have been in the military are used to obeying commands. They're used to being uh, doing what they're told. And this is why, generally speaking, employers love to hire ex-military because they make great employees. And so Israel is going to learn to obey in the most intense of circumstances in God-ordained combat as God commanded Israel to take the land of Canaan from the Canaanites. Now, we have to address just a quick side note here because the book of Numbers forces us to. 
For some, this seems disturbing in that it seems like God is commanding the slaughter of innocent people. He's not commanding the slaughter of innocent people. There are no innocent people. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Canaanites were people who were illegally possessing the land that God had already deeded to the descendants of Abraham. These were peoples who were an abomination to God. They worshiped false deities and they participated in human sacrifices. Spiritually speaking, these people were worthless. And in fact, we want to have an accurately big view of God as God demands that we believe in Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, meaning everything and everyone on it. In fact, compared to what God did at the flood where all humanity is wiped off the face of the earth except for eight people, this is relatively small-scale stuff. And so we acknowledge that God has the right to do what He wants, with whom He wants, when He wants, and how He wants. And so God is going to use the conquest to teach Israel to obey Him. And so at the end of this census of all the fighting age men of Israel, look with me at Near the end of the chapter, in chapter 1, verse 46, here's the conclusion. All those listed were 603,550. But all of a sudden, there's a twist. There's a a surprise, something we didn't expect. After counting all the military-age men, one tribe has been left out. One tribe has been excluded. Look with me at verse 47. But the Levites were not listed along with them by their ancestral tribe. For the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not list, and you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel. But appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, and over all its furnishings, and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it, and shall camp around the tabernacle." So the Levites, the tribe of Moses and his brother Aaron, the high priest, they were to be devoted to the tabernacle, to the traveling worship center that they had just recently built at God's direction. This is the place where all the sacrifices would be given to maintain covenant relationship with God. And so God is now beginning to teach Israel that their life, their obedience, includes living their lives as a nation centered on the worship of God. That was their focus. But now we see just how serious God is about the lay people of his nation obeying him. The Levites, they were given the task of carrying the tabernacle, of disassembling the tabernacle, and of assembling the tabernacle. But what about someone else? What about a non-Levite, somebody from the tribe of Judah or Dan, for example, who said, I'd like to help. What about them? Look with me at verse 51. When the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. As a matter of fact, the Levites were to set up the camp of their tribe around the tabernacle itself. And why is that? They were to surround it. Verse 53 tells us, But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. The Levites were to camp all around the tabernacle to act as guards to keep the wrath of God from falling on those who would try 
try out maybe some self-styled or self-appointed worship. And they were pretty motivated, I would say, because if an intruder wasn't stopped, verse 53 says that the wrath of God would fall on all the people, not just that one person. And so the lay people were to obey the leaders that God had put over them, period. Listen, being in covenant relationship with God was serious business. How did they do, at least at the beginning? The last verse of the chapter, Numbers 154, thus did the people of Israel. They did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. This is music to God's ears, a faithful people humbly obeying him. To further demonstrate that they were to obey by centering their lives on worship, centering their lives on the, on the exaltation of God, God even mandates how they're to camp. Chapter 2, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, the people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their father's houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. And then God in the following verses arranges the order of how the tribes are to camp. Judah, Issachar, Zebulun on the east side of the tabernacle. Reuben, Simeon, and Gad on the south side. Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin on the west side. Dan, Asher, and Naphtali on the north side. And how did they do? Well, look at chapter 2, verse 34. Chapter 2, verse 34, thus did the people of Israel, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so they camped by their standards. And so they set out, each one in his clan, according to his father's house. Again, the lay people obeyed. They obeyed. Did you notice that the center of worship in Israel was in the middle, middle of the camp? Their covenant relationship with God was the focal point of their lives. It wasn't something outside. It wasn't something in the suburbs. It was right in the middle. It was the feasts and the sacrifices and the times of worship which really organized and punctuated all of their lives. There wasn't an option concerning worship. They're in covenant relationship with God. He deserves their worship. He demands their worship. There was no, I don't feel like participating in the Day of Atonement this year. That wasn't an option. They were in covenant. No, the obedience of Israel was centered first and foremost on living a life focused on, concentrated on, fixated on worship. In fact, this morning we began our mini-series, Love Your Church, and we made the case that the true Christian lives his life in the church, that our lives are focused on, concentrated on, fixed on, the fellowship of the saints. There's no, I don't feel like being fully immersed in the life of the church. Covenant faithfulness says you are. You are to be fully immersed in the life of the church because you're in the new covenant. Now we could summarize the positive outcome of these first two chapters. Back in chapter one, verse 54, thus did the people of Israel. They did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. What is our central focus as a church? At Grace Bible Church, as you know, we've taken Colossians 1.28, which I don't mind mentioning pretty much every week. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's what we're to do. Wouldn't it be great if someday we stood before God and we heard a version of Numbers 154 Thus did the people of Grace Bible Church, they did according to all that the Lord commanded them 
in the law of Christ, the New Testament? That would be terrific. The first category of obedience, obedience of the lay people. You can probably guess the second. The second category is the obedience of the leaders. The obedience of the leaders. Now the focus shifts to the leadership of Israel, beginning with a short genealogy of Aaron, the brother of Moses, both of the tribe of Levi. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 1. These are the generations of Aaron and Moses at the time when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab, the firstborn, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the appointed priests whom he ordained to serve as priests. But God wastes no time reminding us of the responsibility of leaders and the consequences for unfaithful leadership. Verse 4, but Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children. So Eleazar and Ithamar served as priests in the lifetime of Aaron, their father. God is reminding the reader here of Leviticus chapter 10 when Nadab and Abihu offered self-styled worship to the Lord. Very grim reminder that God will be worshipped in the way he chooses to be worshipped, not the way we choose, and that the leaders are to obey him. That's our responsibility. God is establishing here a very high regard for the spiritual leadership of Israel because the secondary leaders, the Levite men, they were to serve the high priest. Chapter 3, verse 5 The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. And once again, we're going to see that the consequences for disregarding the Lord become very severe. A person didn't just assign himself to be a leader. He didn't just decide that's what he wanted to do. And the consequences for disregarding God's appointed leadership were high. They were severe. Chapter 3, verse 10. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. Now, verse 10. If any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. This has been said to be the origin of the church secretary to guard the time of her pastor at all costs such that he can fulfill his duties. But more seriously, the idea of coming near, it wasn't merely physically coming near. This spoke of exceeding your privileges, usurping the responsibilities of someone else or encroaching. And this happens in the church. This is, this is the, the lay person in the church Pushing back and being difficult and telling elders, who do you think you are? God's people were to know what they could do, what they could not do. They were not to encroach. They were not to exceed their privileges. The spiritual leadership of the nation was serious business. It was to be guarded. It was to be cherished. It was to be elevated. And in a very real sense, the leaders of Israel were owned by God. They were owned by God. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. 
On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of man and of beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. Now, what is happening here? Well, the Levite men were to be payment for God sparing the firstborn of Israel on the night of the original Passover in Egypt. God simply declares the firstborn are his. What's the reason? The end of verse 13, I am the Lord. Enough said. That's his reason. And as a matter of fact, God was keeping a very precise count. This wasn't symbolic. In chapter 3, verses 40 through 51, there's a difference to account for. In verse 39, there were precisely 22,000 male Levites. Now, the Bible often rounds numbers, but this one isn't rounded. There was exactly 22,000. How do we know this? Well, verse 43, we find out that there were 22,273 firstborn sons from the rest of Israel. Thus, God was owed 273 firstborn males. So verse 46 and following tells us that God charged a price for that difference. Five shekels per person per of the 273 was to be paid to the priest to put in the temple or the, the tabernacle treasury rather. The leaders are owned by God. The whole nation is owned by God, but in a special way, the leaders are owned. So how did Israel do? Chapter 3, verse 51, the very end of the chapter, once again, And Moses gave the redemption money to Aaron and his sons according to the word of the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. Again, they obeyed. Now, we see the theme of the obedience of the leaders now driven a little bit deeper with more detail. God is going to specify the duties of three clans from the tribe of Levi. The sons of Kohath, the sons of Gershon, and the sons of Merari. And these will outline in detail, dividing the duties that previously he's already said in general terms. Chapter 4, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Take a census of the sons of Kohath from among the sons of Levi by their clans and their fathers' houses from 30 years old up to 50 years old, all who can come on duty to do the work in the tent of meeting. This is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tent of meeting, the most holy things. The most holy things, the Kohathite clan of the tribe of Levi would be given special duties concerning the tabernacle. And the sons of Kohath were specifically charged with carrying the most holy things. Verse 5 tells us that the most holy things were first to be disassembled and covered only by Aaron and his sons. What did this include? Well, the veil of the tabernacle was to cover the Ark of the Covenant. The table of the bread of presence was to be covered. The dishes, the bowls, the cups, the lampstand, the utensils, the golden altar, and all the other worship paraphernalia were to be covered only by Aaron and his sons. Then, and only then, did the sons of Kohath come to carry them. And how careful were they to be? Chapter 4, verse 15 And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the tabernacle and all the furnishings of the sanctuary as the camp sets out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these. But they must not touch the holy things lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. 
okay, they can't touch him. They can't touch him. But maybe if you're one of the sons of Kohath, you, you might be tempted to just take a little peek under one of the coverings to see these most holy things that the lay person of Israel was never allowed to see. They never got to see this. So what happens if I'm a son of Kohath and I just take a little peek? Chapter 4, verse 20 tells us, But they shall not go in to look on the holy things, even for a moment, lest they die. Then you have the duties of the sons of Gershon. Chapter 4, verse 24, This is the service of the clans of the Gershonites in serving and bearing burdens. They shall carry the curtains of the tabernacle and the tent of meeting with its covering and the covering of goat skin that is on top of it and the screen for the entrance of the tent of meeting and the hangings of the court and the screen for the entrance of the gate of the court that is around the tabernacle and the altar and their cords and all the equipment for their service. And they shall do all that needs to be done with regard to them. So the sons of Gershon are basically assigned all the curtains, all the tabernacle coverings. And you might think, well, that's, that's kind of cushy duty. We're just carrying the curtains around. First of all, these were thousands of pounds of, of curtains. But they did have one additional duty, a very important one. They apparently served as the temple guards also. Chapter 4, verse 28. This is the service of the clans of the sons of the Gershonites in the tent of meeting. And their guard duty is to be under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. And finally, you had the service of the sons of Merari. Chapter 4, verse 31. And this is what they are charged to carry as the whole of their service in the tent of meeting, the frames of the tabernacle with its bars, pillars, and bases, and the pillars around the court with their bases, pegs, and cords, with all their equipment and all their accessories. And you shall list by name the objects that they are required to carry. They were the carriers of all the framing pieces of the tabernacle, the pillars, the bases, the, the equipment, the accessories. And then for much of the rest of the chapter, you have the actual census, the count of the sons of Kohath, the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari. And the total of these men, verse 48, 8,580. Now that's a leadership team. It takes a lot of people to orchestrate the worship of God, each with his task of serving or carrying. And how did they do once again, verse 49, according to the commandment of the Lord through Moses, they were listed, each one with his task of serving or carrying. Thus, they were listed by him as the Lord commanded Moses. Again, they obeyed. Now we can draw at least a couple of lessons from the obedience of the leaders. I just want to point out a couple of things here. Did you notice that to go fight in a war, you only had to be 20 but to serve God in the tabernacle, you had to be 30. And it seems very clear that more maturity was required to serve the Lord in the tabernacle. And just as someone who's carrying things. Now, why is this? Because even the one carrying things needed to grasp the, the weightiness and the gravity of what those things represented. In the church of Jesus Christ, as soon as a church starts having untrained and untaught people serving at even a lower level, eventually it taints the seriousness and the sobriety and the weightiness and the gravitas of what it means to be the people of God. That's why the person in the church doing what may seem like the lowliest task is to have a gravity 
and the seriousness about what they do. If a leader has great responsibility, there's to be a gravity and a seriousness. If a, if a, a different leader has less responsibility, there's still a gravity, there's a seriousness to everything we do. We could also note the importance, the weightiness of what it meant to be a leader. The Kohathites couldn't even look at the most holy things for one moment or be struck down by God. The Kohathites, for example, they have this great privilege, but they also have the great responsibility that goes with the privilege. And this is exactly the same dynamic that we have in the church of Jesus Christ. There is great privilege as a leader. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, 17, that the leaders especially who labor in preaching and teaching, are to be given double honor. It just means double money. In the context of Paul insisting that teaching elders be compensated rather extremely generously for giving their lives to the shepherding of God's people, there is great privilege. There is to be honor. There is to be respect. There is to be obedience. That's great privilege. But there's great responsibility as well. The Apostle Paul puts preaching pastors, for example, under oath. As he said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, I charge you. In other words, he's saying, I'm telling you to swear to me. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. But the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Great responsibility. Great responsibility. What about the official servants in the church? The deacons, for example. 1 Timothy 3.8 says they must be dignified. It says they must not be double-tongued, meaning not devious in their speech. They're not to be addicted to much wine. In other words, they're not to follow their passions. They're not to be greedy for dishonest gain. In other words, to make money even at the expense of their integrity. And they must be tested first. They must be well-tested God places great emphasis on the obedience of the leaders of his people because as the leaders go, so all the people go. Well, we've seen the obedience of the lay people, the obedience of the leaders. It's a third category of obedience we'll call obedience in life. Obedience in life. It is a major mistake when Christians attempt to separate life into the categories of the things that are God's business and the things that are not God's business. All of life is God's business, and we're going to see this in Numbers chapter 5, obedience in life. Now, the first four chapters so far, they've been positive in emphasis. This is what you're supposed to do. And now, in chapter 5, it's negative in emphasis. It deals with anything that detracts from the sacred character of God's people, from their holiness, from their purity, from their integrity. And chapter 5 deals with three levels of impurity in the camp of God's people, each level getting increasingly more serious. The first level we see in verses 1 through 4, 
of chapter 5, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so and put them outside the camp as the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. This doesn't mean that God is somehow unsympathetic to the plight of those who are ill or those who are ceremonially unclean. He's illustrating that his people, his camp, is to be kept holy in very practical ways. But there's a second level. In verses 5 through 10, we see the event of restitution for having cheated a neighbor or cheated a family member. And in this time of restitution, there was one central event that was necessary. Chapter 5, verse 7, he shall confess his sin that he has committed and he shall make full restitution for his wrong. This defines repentance for us, by the way, confession and restitution. This was necessary for atonement. But then the highest level of dealing with impurity, with unholiness, we see beginning in verse 11, a test for potential adultery. This is a long section beginning in verse 11, which describes a procedure that if a man suspects, but he can't prove that his wife has been unfaithful to him, this is what is supposed to happen. She's to be brought to the priest, a grain offering placed in her hand, much like we would put our hand on a Bible to swear And the priest will have prepared some bitter water from the dust of the floor of the tabernacle mixed into it. And then, after all that, chapter 5, verse 19. Then the priest shall make her take an oath, saying, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you have gone astray, though you were under your husband's authority... And if you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, the Lord make you curse, make you a curse and an oath among your people. When the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell, may this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away. And the woman shall say, amen, amen. What's happening here? Well, then the priest is to write down these curses that he just did and scrape them into the jar of water that already has the dirt from the floor of the tabernacle mixed into it. And then the woman is to drink the water. It's not going to taste good, but it's not going to harm her. Chapter 27, chapter uh, 5, verse 27, rather And when he has made her drink the water, then if she has defiled herself and has broken faith with her husband, the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain, and her womb shall swell, her thigh shall fall away, the woman shall become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive children. So we have this test for a wife suspected of adultery. It's a complex test. Probably the most important lesson for us to take from this is how much space is devoted to the sin of adultery, 21 verses. Marriage was created by God as a reflection of his relationship with his people and marital infidelity is a picture of idolatry and of covenant betrayal. So this is important. This is the highest level of betrayal against God. 
But why is the test for the wife only? Why is that? Well, let me give you a few factors to consider. This is important. First of all, if a man, if a husband is insanely jealous and continually suspecting his wife for no reason, it's very doubtful that the priest would let him continue to bring his wife over and over again for the test. There is no record in Scripture of this test ever being used. doesn't mean it wasn't, but it would mean the destruction of both the woman's and the man's reputation in the community. In other words, a man would have to think very, very carefully before deciding to go to this extreme. There's another factor to consider. Just so we understand, this is not what is called a trial by ordeal. A trial by ordeal was used in some ancient cultures in which the accused person is put through some sort of torturous test which was life-threatening and if the person survived then innocence was supposedly proven but that trial those sorts of trials by ordeal those assumed guilt this assumes innocence and the curses of verses 21 and 22 they're, they're ambiguous it doesn't necessarily mean that something horrible is going to happen to her right at that moment what it does mean is that if she's lying and she takes the test as if she is innocent, she will incur the judgment of God, very likely the inability to have children. And what this would do is now place her fate into God's hands and give the husband peace that he's done all that he can do and that he now must just trust the Lord. But there's one more factor. Some have said, well, this is unfair that this is only the woman taking the test. Actually, this is a protection for women. This is for the protection of a woman from an abusive and a difficult husband. This is a put up or shut up moment. That if he really suspects her, then he either needs to publicly humiliate both her and himself or stop making the accusations. This is not the unfair treatment of women. It's actually to stop the unfair treatment of women, which sinful men are prone to do. But did you notice the progression here in chapter 5? It starts with just neutral defilements such as disease and even this defiles the camp of God and it moves on to sins against your neighbor, against your family members and then in the worst category of sins, the life-altering betrayal which is adultery. What's the point God is making here? God's camp is to be pure. It is to be holy. Unclean people must be excluded. Sin against a neighbor must be confessed. It must be paid for to open the way for forgiveness from God. And even potential adultery is so serious as to warrant perhaps ruining your reputation to find out. Did you notice in chapter 5 that God has touched on every area of life, every representative area of life? Verses 1 through 4, your personal conduct. Verses 5 through 10, your relationships with the covenant community of God. And in this whole last section, he touches on your most intimate relationships. What does this tell us? That a loyal covenant keeper is obedient in life. There's not somehow a separation of my sacred life and my secular life. All life is sacred. Now at this point, you might be saying, boy, I'm glad I didn't live back then because how could anyone not defile the holy camp of God? You'd be right. This leads to the hopeless conclusion that everyone defiles the camp of God. 
Or to put it as the Apostle Paul did, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that conclusion is meant, of course, to drive you to Christ, to drive you to the cross, to drive you to forgiveness, to drive you to the blood that covers your sin, to drive you to the one who has never defiled the camp of God and who would stand in your place to offer his sacrificial death and his perfect life to God on your behalf in place of yours. This is good news. That the defiled, the cheaters and liars, and yes, even the jealous, abusive husbands, and yes, the potentially adulterous wives, may all have their sins forgiven by the blood shed at the cross of Christ. We've seen the obedience of the lay people, the obedience of the leaders, obedience in life. One more category of obedience, we'll call this obedience in loyalty. Obedience and loyalty. God now introduces to Israel one of the most unique things in all of the Bible, a unique opportunity to demonstrate an added and a heightened time of devotion and loyalty to the Lord called the vow of the Nazarite. Nazarite is really just an English transliteration of the Hebrew word Nazir, which means separated one, one who is separated out. The Nazarite vow consisted usually of a temporary time of some sort of added focus upon the Lord's added devotion to the Lord, added service of the Lord. There's no specified reason here in chapter 6 for doing this, and so it leaves open a a very wide range of possibilities. It might be an expression of thanksgiving, might be an expression of devotion. It may be even time, a, a time of special prayer to make a special request before the Lord. In a few cases, God set someone apart himself as a permanent Nazarite. We see this in the judge Samson, in the prophet Samuel, and in the forerunner John the Baptist. They were Nazarites. But even here, in this voluntary act of dedication in which a man or a woman, by the way, could enjoy, it would be God making the rules, God being the one to show what such special dedication and set-apart status would look like. We don't get to do that. Chapter 6, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself from the Lord, then God gives three specific restrictions in the following verses. Restriction number one, no wine, not even any grape juice, not even any grapes. You're not even going to look like you're drinking. Second restriction, You cannot cut their hair. They must let their hair grow long. And if this vow goes on for a period of years, they would have very long hair. And they were to have the third restriction, no contact with the deceased, even their own dead family members. They couldn't touch them. Now, that's hard for us to understand why that's important. In our culture, we immediately hire professionals to deal with the bodies of our dead. But in most eras of history, that's the family that did that. What does this mean? Well, it means they were to be disciplined in their appetites. They were to be set apart in their appearance. And they were separated from normal duties and from those things that would even temporarily contaminate them ceremonially. God was extremely serious about this. In verses 9 through 12, if there was some sort of accidental contamination that happened, there had to be atonement. Payment had to be made. If you were saying, I'm serious about my devotion to God, 
then God's reply was, then this will be done my way with sobriety and with purity. And then in verses 13 through 20 of chapter 6, at the completion of the time of the vow, offerings must be made, a sin offering, a burnt offering, a peace offering. And look what else gets offered. Chapter 6, verse 18 And the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire that is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. Sacrifices his hair, her hair. One of the symbols of separation, the long hair is permanently given to God. The idea being that you're changed, you're different for having spent this extra time of devotion. You're humbled because the very last thing that happens to you is that you are shaved completely bald. There's something very appealing to this option. To spend a specified period of time in worship and devotion to the Lord. Something very appealing about this. And some have said that the vow of the Nazarite is is something that's unique to the Old Testament and and doesn't really have a New Testament parallel. I don't think we look for a New Testament parallel, though, as something that is extra, something that is unique, something that that is the exception, some sort of extra loyalty under the New Covenant. I would submit to you that the vow of the Nazarite is way more like what the normal Christian life is to be. A life characterized by complete set-apartness. A total sacrifice that is a a time of being transformed and being holy. That is the Christian life. As a matter of fact, compare the vow of the Nazarite to this important and well-known admonition by the Apostle Paul. You know this. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How is that like the vow of the Nazarite? Let me show you. The Nazarite was to set himself apart to lead a purified life. The Christian is told, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, that's set apart and acceptable to God. The Nazarite separates himself from what the rest of the world is doing. The Christian, do not be conformed to what? To this world. The Nazarite ended his time of the vow with a sacrifice. The Christian's whole life is to be a sacrifice. The Nazarite took part of his body, his hair, and gave it to the Lord. The Christian is told, present your bodies, your whole person to the Lord. And how about this one? Verse 18, the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head. And the Christian in Romans 12 is to be about the business of the renewal of your mind, your consecrated head, as it were. The normal Christian life has many parallels to the vow of the Nazarite, to live a life separated from the opinions and influences of worldly philosophy and worldly systems. What did the law of Moses in general and the vow of the Nazarite, more specifically at even a higher level, what did these things do for Israel? What did they do for Israel? Well, it set her apart as completely unique from the nations around her, that God would be shown to the nations, that God would be made big in the world, that God would be glorified to the world. They're different. They're they're completely set apart. 
So let me ask you this. How are you set apart? How are you different? How are you loyal? The world engenders chaos in the home. Is your home a home of peace? The world encourages selfishness and self-satisfaction. Is your home and life one of giving and sacrifice? The world spends its spare time trying to amuse itself to death. In your home, does worship happen? Is the Lord honored every single day in your home? The world picks and chooses activities which meet my personal needs and, and often involvement in the church is seen as merely just another way, another activity to fit into my busy schedule. But is your life camped around the tabernacle? Is it centered on the worship of God? We are participants in the new covenant. We were granted access into the blessing of the new covenant by means of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross to pay our admission to be part of the people of God, to atone for our countless sins. But as recipients of the endless blessings of the new covenant, we are expected to mature in our obedience. God always keeps his covenants. He always does. Did you notice that all throughout this section of Numbers 1 through 6, whatever the Lord commanded, Israel did. Numbers 154, thus did the people of Israel. They did according to all that the Lord commanded. Chapter 2, verse 34, thus did the people of Israel. Chapter 4, 49, thus they were listed by him as the Lord commanded. Chapter 5, verse 4, and the people of Israel did so as the Lord said to Moses, so the people did. So when you have now the obedience of the lay people, the obedience of the leaders, the obedience in life and obedience in loyalty, what do you think God does? How does God respond to covenant obedience and faithfulness? Numbers chapter 6, verse 22, here's how God responds. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Three times over, the Lord blesses, the Lord blesses, the Lord blesses. What is this? This is imagery of a throne room. A throne room where the doors are open wide to an obedient people. The holy king graciously granting favor and relationship and protection and peace. The face of the king smiling upon his people in the joy of an unhindered relationship because you took him at his word and you obeyed. You cannot play religion with God. You cannot decide to keep some hidden sin for yourself. You cannot decide to be out of step with the law of Christ as revealed in the New Testament and expect to walk in the joy of this amazing blessing. This is a blessing for people who obey. Now you might be wondering, Steve, can you simplify this? We just did six chapters of the book of Numbers. How can I live a life of this simple obedience and enjoy this blessing of the Lord? Well, remember at the beginning of our time, it seemed, I, I said that it seemed like the Israel went from the spectacular thunder and lightning and, and, and amazing, the, the smoke of the, 
very presence of God at Mount Sinai, all of a sudden down to the mundane act of taking a census. Well, in the same way, the cross of Christ is the thunder and the lightning and the smoke of the very presence of God, the stunning act of God to save you by the atoning sacrifice of Christ. And you say, okay, well, what do I do now? Now, you live out your faith in the mundane things of life. Paul said it this way in 1 Thessalonians 4.11 that we are to aspire to live quietly, means in a well-ordered way, and to mind our own affairs. Literally, practice your own stuff. You might say, well, Lord, I want to do something spectacular for you. Okay? Love your wife as Christ has loved you. And stop being so impatient with her. But Lord, I want to be used of you. Great. Submit to your husband's in all things like it was me and stop disrespecting him Uh, lord you don't understand i want to do something special terrific start by showing up for work on time and stop giving christians a bad name that would be special oh lord i want to be like the nazarite i want to be set apart fabulous you can start by watching your mouth and stop gossiping that would set you apart Uh, but lord i feel that you have something unique for me to accomplish i'm glad you said that if you would stop Mouthing off to those in authority over you, that would be unique. Do you see that the proper response of our maturing is to obey in the everyday mundane things of life? And that is pleasing to the Lord. The mature Christian life must start with the so-called mundane, with obedience to the law of Christ under the new covenant. And if you will understand that as a part of the new covenant, you have duties, you have obligations. And if you will keep those duties and keep those obligations, what do you get? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Let's pray. Our Father... We come to you now asking you to help us to obey. Our Lord Jesus Christ, when he was on earth, said that if we love him, we will obey his commandments. And I pray, Lord, that we would mature in this. I pray for a man or a woman who has not taken that even very first step of obedience, which is to submit themselves to the the gospel of Christ. I pray that they would repent of their sins, that even now the Holy Spirit would be working in them to teach them how horrible their sin is and that they might turn away from their sin and turn to Christ. And then for all those who are in Christ listening, we pray, Lord, that you would be gracious to us to help us to continue to grow into the image of our dear Savior, to help us to take down those sins which easily beset us, to work at sanctification, to obey you such that we might enjoy the Lord blessing us and keeping us and making his face to shine upon us and seeing your countenance lifted up to us and the peace given to us that is ours by right if we will obey. We love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.